Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hello. Good morning, Los Angeles time. What a morning it is. You've already received a call first thing this morning. And who was that call from? Well, it's a it's a big day in Hive World. Michael Cohen has been released from prison. Michael Cohen. And Michael Cohen, a, a Hive favorite, a, a longtime subject of mine. And he is now officially home after serving uh, just a little bit more than a year in federal prison in Otisville, New York. And he, I spoke to him this morning, uh, not long after he got home. And I think it's been a real trip. I think uh, going to prison is, is what it is. Um, and I think coming home from prison is a whole other animal. I think that uh, for the last month or so, he's been in solitary confinement. And it was in part because uh, he was quarantining when the Department of Justice decided that people in prisons and, and the prison in Otisville decided that its, it's uh, inmates were not safe to be there because of the coronavirus. Uh, they started quarantining people, and the way they did it, at least for Michael Cohen, was that he was put in solitary confinement. Now, while he was quarantining there, the Department of Justice and Bureau of Prison uh, changed the way that they were going to let people out. So Michael, for a time, was supposed to get out at the beginning of May, and then the Department of Justice rolled that back. And so he just stayed in solitary confinement because if he went back into the regular prison population, then he would have to quarantine again once he was eventually going to be let out for another 14 days. And that's a long time to be in solitary confinement. He was quarantined within the quarantine. That's exactly he had, right. He had several layers of quarantining. That's, That's exactly right. unbelievable. The psychological impact of being completely alone for over a month Yeah, I think I think it's profound. like 23 hours in your cell. You only get eight or so minutes on the phone every week. And... Uh, he said his body hurts, and uh, he is very happy to be home with his family. And uh, I think we'll we'll see what happens from here. I mean, after Paul Manafort got released from prison, now Michael Cohen is released from prison. Michael Flynn looks like he will never spend time in prison after after pleading guilty and then not pleading guilty, and then the. Department of Justice dropping the case. I don't think that anyone who was involved in the Russia investigation is currently in prison. Roger Stone has not yet been sentenced, but I would imagine that the president is on his way to thinking about, at least thinking about a pardon. Uh, it's crazy when you think about if you told either one of us two years ago that right now there would be no one with any real consequences, lasting consequences for their involvement in the Russia investigation or their dealings with, with President Donald Trump. I don't know that either of us would have believed you. It's amazing that when Michael Cohen went into prison, prison there was a Russiagate. There was something called Russiagate, and now he's emerged from prison, and now there's Obamagate. The entire story has been reverse-engineered or attempted to be reverse-engineered by President Trump with his um, conspiracy that Obama tried to take him down in some kind of very hazy, vague way that has not never been explained fully. But um, and it's such a uh, you know it's transparently a political election year 
uh, distraction to both energize um, his base and to kind of take attention away from the thing that is consuming everybody's attention, which is the actual crisis in front of us and the mismanagement of it. I just was tweeting this a minute ago, and I'm sorry I have to say that I tweeted something uh, as a part of our, our conversation. You know what? But I'm fine uh, if you say that. What I hate is the construction so-and-so took to Twitter. <laughs> so as long as you say, yeah. I didn't take to Twitter, I, t- I, would never I tweeted, take that's fine. To Twitter. It's not a I, thing. I hate that construction. Well, anyway, I, and go I, ahead. I'm going to avoid it. But I just asked the question, is Obamagate still a thing? Or was that just last week? Was and it ever a thing? No, it's or never. It was just, no, it, it was, was never a, a thing. It, it was just like a, you know, is it still a storyline, even whether it's true or not? Uh, is the president still trying to make Obama get happen? Right, that's and what you're so saying. I think the mainstream media has already been like, oh, forget about it, ridiculous. And then the right wing media is going to stay on top of it because it uh, appeals to some of their uh, to Trump's base. If you were to trend forecast the GOP, I would say that. Obamagate will go strong for them through the election. I don't think it's going to be the top buzzword from now until November 3rd, but it's going to be part of the lexicon. No doubt. It works for him, for for his segment of the population. I wonder, I have not done this because I would like to keep some shred of my sanity, but if you were to continue to watch Fox News, how many times it's been mentioned this week versus last week and how that compares to next week and the weeks going forward, I wonder how strongly it's staying part of their conversation. Let's make a plan to review that and uh, do some analysis. I'm going to draft but you to do that. I'll draft. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll take out up the job. Knock. I'm going to go investigate that. Come back with a report next week. You're about, a brave man, Joe. Yeah, it's ugly, but somebody has to do it. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about it is it once again goes back to Trump's instincts uh, for creating narratives, um, and this one works, I think, for a reason. I I was talking to Obama's former political strategist, David Pluff, maybe a month and a half ago, when I asked him, hey, is Obama going to be a factor in this election? Is he, you know, how how might he help Joe Biden um, and get people excited? And at the time, Pluff was saying, you know, I don't think he'll be much of a factor. Usually ex-presidents aren't, you know, big deciding factors for voters. But suddenly, uh, you know, with Biden being absent, either strategically or because he can't break through in the media, Obama's been very forward. You know, he was has this commencement speech he gave to graduates last year, uh, last week, um, in a TV show produced by LeBron James. I, it was interesting because one, it was a great idea, and I thought this is something regularly a president might do. Like, why wasn't Trump doing that? You know, he that he doesn't spoke think volumes. like that. Right. But then what Obama said was so compelling. It was um, he was saying, hey, listen, the world has been changed. It's easy to be frightened by what you're going out into. Unbelievable economic devastation, unemployment. You've got a, a, a pandemic out there. But he's saying, you know, it's 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 torn back the curtain and shown that the people who ordinarily you would think knew what they were doing, who are in charge, don't really know what's going on. And he says, this is an opportunity for you to go out and reinvent the world as you would like it to be. And and it kind of jived a little bit with the story in The Times over the weekend, which is about Biden himself is out there consulting with Warren and 
and Bernie Sanders, hey, we got to come up with a platform that's radical. This is an opportunity to reinvent things. So, well, you know, for whatever it's worth, that was powerful. That was powerful rhetoric from Obama. And well, it's also it's interesting the way that he he did not mention President Trump by name, but it was it was not obvious. Yeah. Even veiled that he was referring to the president not being in charge of his own ship, which is unusual for a former president to even come close to jabbing a sitting president. Obviously, we were in the most unusual times. And I think that that it was a very effective and moving criticism, but also, as you said, the the message for young people going forward. I, I think that the former President Obama will be an incredibly helpful surrogate going forward, but it makes me long for a candidate himself or herself, more importantly, right. uh, right. who will inspire that on their own. It's a tough pill to swallow when you say the best thing about a current candidate is their former boss being a surrogate for them. That doesn't well, say I, much about, I agree. about the current candidate. And I agree with that. Um, although maybe in this stage of the cycle, and this is something we've talked about in the past, and I, you know, whether or not Biden's strategy of whole, you know, staying in the background right now is actually a strategic benefit, or whether, oh. you know, because you're, I know you're, you believe that he's not energizing um, voters enough and that he needs to spend every waking minute doing that up until yes. the election. But we're in very st- strange context here, right? We, and because of the pandemic and because he's, you know, up till recently, it's worked because Trump has shot himself in the foot over and over again. Now Trump has unleashed this Obamagate thing and other kinds in, in in the outrage of trying to undo the Russiagate thing, which has lots of truth to it <laughs> that we know, sure. right? Um, he's using all of this to kind of smokescreen uh, things. So it may be time for Biden to come out. And I did see like a little um, Instagram ad that popped up on my screen recently. Be the first to know about Biden's VP pick. Sign here. You know what I mean? Like sign up, get did your you email enrolled. No, I didn't. I, I mean, it's already you popping up be, on you my screen. You want to be last to know? Okay. Well, I, I figure it'll come up on my New York Times. It'll find uh, news you. alert. It'll find me. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I'll probably figure it out. But, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, that's the big, the next big move, and maybe that will mark, the moment when Biden is going to come out from the bunker, and he will appear as a package deal, right, with whoever he has chosen. And there's all this speculation: is it Amy Klobuchar? Is it you know? Going to be Should we start a pool? All right. So I, you know, we didn't talk about this before, so I'm putting you on the spot and I actually don't have an answer. Maybe, maybe here's this because I don't have an answer yet. Next week, come ready with your pick. We're going to, we're going to make a bet. I don't know what the terms of the bet yet are. And I don't know if it's illegal to gamble like this. I have no idea. But we're going to make a we're bet. We're doing it. We're being. Re- we're recording ourselves. I'm ready. Doing something potentially um, illegal, but hey, you know, we're the dumbest criminals there ever ever was. Well, you. Um, well, I I'm the dumbest criminal. You. I'm taking. I'm taking full credit <laughs> for this. Um, the bet is going to be no low stakes, but I'm excited for it. Okay. Well, I'm high gonna, stakes intellectually. I'm going to um, consult with my Vegas odds makers and. I'll be back to you next week. Great. I think I think uh, this is a real tune-in event 
speaking of tune in events, Joe, yeah. you have a great interview coming up. I can't wait to hear it. Tell me all about it. I'm really excited about this interview because the subject, uh, one of the su- two people I spoke with uh, this week, John Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians, which was like a smash hit um, the last year, global global hit, great movie. And his editor, Myron Kirstein, who's sort of his kind of wingman in his creative projects, um, are both on to talk about what's been going on in Hollywood and with their own project, which was In the Heights, the Lin-Manuel Miranda movie that was supposed to come out this summer. I got to see a rough cut of it a few months ago. It's, it's unbelievably great. I mean, it's like a joyful, you know, musical with dancing and singing and incredibly attractive leads. Um, I saw the play years ago. I mean, probably 10 million years ago now. And yeah. I'm so excited to see it turned into a movie. The play was such a fantastic celebration. I can't wait right. to see the, the movie. Well, that's the, you know, and the joy of it is something I think we could all probably use right now. I mean, it would have been great if it had come out this summer, say mm. on Netflix or name your streaming thing. I would have watched it. I would have paid a little extra to watch, an ex- you know, a brand new movie pop up on my... In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, but... They made the decision to push it to next summer because they want to roll it out in the theaters. I mean, and one of the things we talk about in this interview is that, uh, you know, John Chu had the option to put Crazy Rich Asians on a streaming service instead of going to the theaters, but he bet on the theaters and he won big. It's so interesting to think about. I mean, we talk about this a lot in my house because um, I live with someone who is very much in the middle of Hollywood and... uh, the the tastes for everything, I think, will change post-corona, even when there is a vaccine, though we have no idea when that will be. I think people are going to get used to the idea of watching blockbusters at home. Look how well Trolls did, right? That movie just exploded at home, and it gives, I'm sure, a, a lot of theater owners pause and studios lots to think about. Um, I, for one, I love going to the movies. I also love watching movies at home. And if you told me a theater was never going to exist again, I would say, okay, it doesn't really affect my life so much. I think that the way we talk about it here, and and I'm very curious what you think and what you talk about in your interview is that, um, there will be movie theaters that only offer like the Marvel movie, right? And it'll be maybe like a a Disney experience to go and see it. And there will be a Disney store at the movie theater. Um, but you're not necessarily going to have a movie theater that's showing the Marvel movie and the, the indie pick and the rom-com that you have now that, that mix that a theater will instead be spaced seating and showing, you know, four theaters showing the Avengers rather than, every movie theater packed and showing a variety of different movies. And we and we get into that a little bit in the conversation, exactly. And uh, before uh, we cue it up here, I just want to alert you to the back end of this interview. I ask uh, John Chu about the future of theaters and whether or not, how important they are. And he has some really just eloquent um, commentary about that that I want to cue you into and I hope that you'll listen to because um, it, he's, it was very moving, frankly, and uh, I think people are going to enjoy this interview. So let's listen to it. Without further ado, John Chu, director of Crazy Rich Asians and forthcoming In the Heights with his editor, Myron Kirstein. Roll them. Roll them. 
Uh, we're here with the director, John Chu, of Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, his right-hand man and editor, uh, Myron Kirstein. Welcome, guys. Thank you. What's going on? It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to have you here uh, under these bizarre circumstances that we're all in nowadays. Um, you know, I was thinking back several months ago, I, uh, when I first met John Chu, uh, in an office, a bustling office in New York where you were editing, uh, your forthcoming film in the Heights. And there were all yes. these people together in an office, <laughs> hanging out, sitting, looking at editing screens and talking about- Not just about... together, stuffed together in small rooms. Yeah, small right. Yeah. Which is basically, you know, that's how, how business gets done uh, nowadays. But, um, and I also was lucky enough to see sort of a rough cut of the film, and I won't be giving anything away by saying it's like, uh, wow, what a colorful, beautiful, musical, joyful film that you made called In the Heights. For those who don't know, it is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, first musical, In the Heights, which I guess is partially based on his own you know, upbringing and sort of um, Puerto Rican areas of uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, there was, I was thinking this summer is going to be, you know, a big musical blockbuster in theaters, as you did too. So that's changed. That's changed. Yes. Yes. Tell me how you learned that things were going to be different for you and this film is going to be pushed uh, to next year. Um, well, I learned, um, I mean, it, this is always a discussion, you know, right when I, we were mixing the music when, and the whole movie, when, um, when the NBA shut down and Trump made his speech and Tom Hanks got it and the world was crumbling in all around us. So we were in the heart of it in New York and, um, my family had just moved back to LA. So I had to quickly figure out, am I going back to LA? Cause I don't want these airlines to shut down and get stuck without my family during this time. Yeah. Um, knowing that babysitters weren't happening, school wasn't happening anymore. So um, the temperature went up real quick. Um, and so we had to sort of assess where we were. And by doing that and realizing, oh, the companies that were doing our coloring or doing our visual effects were shutting down already and not even allowing their workers to go in or travel anymore, uh, we realized it was very serious. So I sort of saw it as, um, oh, this is, our movie's gonna be at risk because we were, we, we were a tight anyway of, of when we could finish and when the movie was coming out. Um, so it was a long discussion from that day one um, of, uh, of, is this gonna come out during the summer and what our movie theater is gonna be at that point? Um, right. And then we decided ultimately over a phone call, a couple phone calls, probably like uh, several weeks later. Uh, we did not make decisions up, up front. And can you give me some insight into like, I mean, nobody knows anything. That's one yeah. thing. You know, you just, there's no telling uh, when theaters will be open again. But but we do know that other films that were slated for the summer made different decisions, right? Mm -hmm. To go mm -hmm. out on Netflix or to come out on a streaming service or like Trolls, you know, I, I watched that with my children recently. It was 20 bucks. I'm yep. sure that, you know, maybe they made their money. I think they probably did okay. But like, mm -hmm. but you sort of, I know that famously you uh, are very dedicated to having your film seen in the theater. At least you were with Crazy Rich Asians, right? Is that similar yeah. to here or? Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I love streaming. I, I, we were watching it all the time. I think great, amazing quality stuff obviously happens on streaming. Um, 
for me, we made this movie to be on the big screen, uh, a musical of this scope, of this size. Um, you know, we shot it uh, anamorphic, uh, so it could span the whole screen, uh, the way the colors are, the way you experience this as a community, uh, where people should be singing along, dancing in the aisles. Like that is something, uh, is that, again, not all my movies, but this movie in particular, Crazy Rich Asians in particular, had a very specific purpose of getting people together. Um, that is part of the experience, not just the movie itself. And Myron and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, how movies affected us when we were young and its place in our culture now of getting people out of their homes, out of uh, out of their cell phones, um, and um, and together to be with each other. So. Uh, for this one in particular, that was a big, a big thing for us. Of course, you know, with Warner Brothers, they have HBO Max, which is coming, um, and so there's always temptations to put it over there. But obviously, that was also not ready yet. It's about to come out, but at that time, it wasn't fully. And 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 in the end of the day, that was not the experience that um, I particularly wanted our movie to be. And I, I know Lynn agreed with that. So, right, um, yeah. So, and he was involved in the discussions i take it because was he is he a producer on it or yeah um we were we a lot of us are we have some great producers scott sanders lynn of course kiar who's our writer and bregman who's done a lot of uh movies uh and so all of us sort of got together with the studio because they studio sort of laid out the different scenarios for us they were very actually open to how we wanted to do it because they also did not have the answers and it wasn't one conversation that came to the conclusion it was let's have like three or four different conversations as every week is a different story that that is happening with where we are at even to this day they're not i think it's like we still don't quite fully know what is going to be happening in these theaters so um so you never know but uh but that's where we we landed that that next year for us because it's coming out um june 16th of next year uh, was best for us because, you know, when we did Crazy Rich Asians, um, there was a whole ecosystem that had to build. Um, the, the movie, the the book was big, but but people didn't really know our stars yet. We had to really make them movie stars, and so you have to get them in magazines, you have to get them in articles, you have to get them on those talk shows, daytime, late night, all that stuff. So you're building an ecosystem around these actors. Who, and you make them stars. And in a way, it's almost bigger than the movie itself. Because after this movie, you're creating a new lane for these actors in Crazy Rich Asians, who's all Asians um, from all around the world. Uh, and in in The Heights, it's uh, mostly Latinx actors, young, um, some vets, but, but, but really putting them on the map so that their next movie that's not with us, uh, they're a star in that movie. Um, and that that is the real power of when you make a movie with a studio that has uh, that that has that kind of representation, and you get to cast people who didn't, never got the chance to to be in those roles um, because they are always the side characters or always playing stereotypes. And this one, they really get to blossom, and that is the bigger, lasting legacy of these these movies, Crazy Rich Asians, and I believe In the Heights will have that. And that takes time. That takes. Uh, a whole mechanism of a company getting spending tens of millions of dollars getting behind that. So that was also a big part of my, my decision to. And I can see that because in the Heights is, um, 
the cast is all these really young, beautiful, incredibly talented, you know, actors and actresses, many of whom you've never seen before. And this was going to be their yeah. splash debut and you need to build around that. I was just talking 100%. to somebody. Um, I was talking to somebody at Netflix yesterday, similar to what you just said. They were saying, you know, listen, we're long, far as advanced as anyone in, in Hollywood. We can't tell you what's going to happen next, you know, in terms of, you know, how are you going to adapt to where we're at right now, you know, with the studio shut down, but, um, and nobody able to work and when will be, we be able to work? You also have a, um, some sort of production deal, right? Was it with Apple? Uh, um, I, we have it with, uh, uh, Fox Disney. Fox so, Disney, sorry. Uh, so it's, uh, Hulu, Disney plus, uh, Freeform, FX, all those, those companies. So yeah, with 20th century, you, yeah. Have you, has anybody contact, do you know, are there conversations around, um, trying to figure out how they can have productions again? You know, there are, de there are a lot of conversations. I am not fully privy to it, to those conversations. Um, we are, you know, for us, we're just trying to make sure the scripts are in place so we can go shoot. I was supposed to go shoot a pilot for ABC, um, in the summer. And so we are instead focusing on developing the other scripts, making sure it's all rock solid while we figure out how to even shoot, um, in the next six months. So that's, but I'm not privy to all the union conversations that I'm sure every, uh, every union's having for their, for whether it's their actors or the directors or the, anybody, I think there's such a huge responsibility that no one wants to put anyone in danger. And so, right. um, they have to protect, uh, put those, put, uh, you know, the big companies are probably, let's go shoot, let's go shoot, let's go shoot. Um, yeah. and, uh, but I know, you know, a lot of people who even run those companies are, you know, they're, they are good people. They're human beings and they don't want to, um, they don't want to rush it as well. So. Yeah. Well, just like we were talking about with people, when the good weather comes out, people want to get out. I yeah. know that, you know, the creatives want to get out there and make their stuff. You know, I mean, Myron, you were really at the, at the outset of directing your first, um, TV show, right? I mean, uh, or an episode of a show and suddenly that was all put on the back burner. Um, were yeah. you, in, uh, I think, were you in Canada or something? Where were you shooting? <clears throat> yeah, I was shooting in Vancouver. Uh, actually I was shooting the show that I had edited the pilot for with John, the show called home before dark, which just came out on Apple plus. And, uh, I was, I actually left New York um, while John was finishing the mix, uh, for the film. And, um, I was 10 days into prep and two days into the shoot and they shut it all down. So yeah, there you go. Uh, so now, yeah, now we're in this situation where, um, I just, I heard, uh, from somebody else I know who's in the film business, you know, uh, I shouldn't say the name of the actress he was talking about, famous actresses, proposing, oh, I'm going to take a crew up to Maine and we're going to quarantine for two weeks and we're going to and we're going to we're going to make a film happen anyway. You know, um, does that seem plausible to you? No. I mean, right. I mean, I don't think this micro bubble idea of um Quarantining everybody for two weeks and then shooting is a reality because one person gets sick and then, you know, there's lawsuits. And I mean, right. I don't know, maybe someone someone's going to do it. Someone's crazy enough to do it, but I don't think it's a 
reality. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you bring up a good point about um, sort of the bigger conglomerate, the big the studios making movies is different than independent people making movies. You know, there's so much money against your production, so you're you have insurance, you have all these you know stuff, and if anything goes wrong, well, who what insurance company is going to cover any of that stuff? I don't know, right. unless you have very, I don't know, I don't know how. I guess it's up to that. Of, 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 at that level, um, there's so many other legal uh, ramifications with that. I think a crew can just go and shoot anything. I mean, whatever. Like, yeah. But is that safe? I don't know. Who knows? I think the testing is going to be such a huge part of it. Um, you know, there, Ted um, Sarandos from uh, Netflix wrote that article in LA Times about how they're doing it in uh, South Korea and other parts of the world where some, and some countries testing is very available so they can do it one way and other places testing is not as available uh, but they have less cases so they do it another way uh, but some of those things are very interesting like they um every four hours the crew has to stop and wash their hands every three or four hours something like that. Wow. every morning everyone's getting their temperature taken um and they have a doctor on set and they're getting so and of course they're the quarantine before and then uh, so, uh, before they even there and there's no guests there's nothing no in and out you're like there so yeah. who knows like what how that all pans out but um i guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah i well i've thought about that you know there and there are supposed you know there are films being made in sweden and these other yeah. countries where um and I don't know how much of an option that is for you and whatever you're doing, but, um, you know, but at the end of the day, your audience is trapped at home, <laughs> you know? So that's like, yeah. uh, the inability to put it in a theater, but you know, uh, yeah. these streaming networks like Apple and Disney plus and Netflix, they, they had, they need content, right? Totally. Um, I think the big, the, also the other myth of movie theaters is that they're packed all the time. Um, whereas actually like Monday through Friday, their capacity is less than 50% at their most busy. So if they are, so by maxing out a theater by 50%, you know, it'll affect opening weekends for sure. But if you're the only movie and there's only new movie and you have more theater, more screens, then maybe that can compensate for those things. I think that's, what's going to be interesting about seeing Tenet from Warner brothers, seeing Mulan from uh, Disney, how do they take? Uh, how do they use the lack of movies to help compensate, uh, to give them more screens, to maybe possibly match up? Then the question becomes: How comfortable is are, are the people at home going to be to go out to a theater? Maybe places will be, and other places will not be as. Um, yeah. But a majority of the money made by uh, big tentpole movies are uh, are the big cities. So that th these are all the questions that we keep sort of. Again, not my job, but uh, yeah, like yeah. swirling around. Well, it offers a really fascinating kind of um, ethical slash political um, choice for the for the theaters because there are people gathering in this country right now. Yeah, and some people don't like it. You know, you see on Twitter or on the news, you know, videos yeah. of people just converging at beaches and yeah. even in L.A. Right. Totally. Um, and by so, the way, just just and, and Myron can probably speak to this, too. Like we are, you know, Myron is in charge of the editorial crew and I'm in charge of the movie. And so we as leaders of these people who have to come in and they're going to they're, they're team players. They're going to come and, and help you make your movie like that's what we were 
born to do. That's why we're in this business. That's why we've survived in this business. And if we ask them to show up, they're going to show up. And so we, as leaders, what I really grew to realize is we actually have to be more responsible as the leaders to help protect them. Um, you know, when a company that has paid for all of this is breathing down your neck to go, 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 don't stop. Don't fly back to LA. Keep making the movie. You only have three more weeks. Don't worry. It'll get better and we'll assess at that point. Meanwhile, our crew who is working on the, you know, on the mix or whatever, their kids are being sent home. So they don't have babysitters and they're, they're struggling emotionally to re figure out how are they going to get their next job if this good thing goes down, let alone take care of the kid who's at home and be here and putting themselves at risk and could potentially put their parents at risk who are also now moved into their house. Like there are all these questions that came up literally while we are. Uh, and, 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 and when the federal government's not making those decisions for you, uh, and at that point, uh, states had not made those decisions for you, uh, that responsibility fell on us. Um, and, uh, and that was hard. That was hard to, well, it was both hard and empowering to realize, oh, we can be those people to help our crew um, and instead of just making this movie. So that was, the, and, and, and again, Myron, you can speak to some of, on your side, you were at that point, now you were both part of our crew, but also leading his own crew in Vancouver. So that's more difficult. And the idea to shut down your production at that point must have been very difficult. Yeah, there was even debate. Um, there, you know, there was uh, four editors on the new TV show, and I was a uh, also a, a producer this season. And they're like, we just want to work one more week. It's like, you can't work one more day. You have to go home. But at the same time, nobody really wanted to make that decision <laughs> because there was so much unknown out there. And I was like, I don't think you guys should be sitting in crowded offices together. Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> you know that your crew in New York working on the film is also um, uh, trying to uh, finish the film for John. And you're saying, well, what's the safety um, there with, you know, five people on a mixed stage, you know, and eight people in an edit room. So it's, um, it was, it was, um, it was unnerving. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a lot of, that's a big, uh, a lot of decision, you know, to put on a, on a director who's already got a million decisions on their head. Suddenly it's like your whole crew's health and well-being. I mean, I guess. Uh, and half know. of your crew wants you to keep, it's like, be the leader and keep things moving. And the other half of the crew is like, protect us. So the job that you do, Myron, editing, can plausibly be done alone, right? And I know that you've now moved your entire editing operation into your living room. Is that uh, what's going on nowadays? And you're, you're still working on, on uh, In the Heights. Well, I, I was up to... Uh... Uh, about a week ago. Uh, so the good news is, um, if there's any good news to take from this craziness is, um, you know, because we had a little bit more time on our hands, uh, John asked us to look at, um, or asked me rather, to uh, look at a few more things for the film. So Warner Brothers granted us a the ability to set up a editing machine. I use an Avid and, um, and off to the races. And Strangely enough, um, with technology these days, you could do things pretty seamlessly. Even working remotely with John was a uh, 
was pretty interesting and, and fun. And, and we were able to um, shorten the film a little bit and, um, you know, uh, yeah, just polish a little bit more. And, um, and that was great. It was, uh, yeah. it was actually a lifesaver um, just to keep my sanity, just to be working on something, but also um, to have a little bit more income um, when suddenly um, everything had stopped. Um, yeah, uh, this is one of the interesting things. So two two issues there. One, keeping one's sanity uh, is something for everybody to deal with right now. Everybody's used to being on the go and having their outlet and doing their thing. And especially in filmmaking, you're so used to being around lots of other people, and it's partly a management job um, of directing people, right? So, um, but Myron, you were telling me recently that, um, you know, some editors are being offered jobs to like uh, edit together graduation videos for like uh, people who could afford to have such a thing done, right? I mean, people are finding other ways to, you know, occupy themselves with the skills they have. I mean, um, what else, what are you guys hearing out there from people in your business? How are they, what are the, how are they proposing to adapt right now? I mean, are they just having to sit on the beach until this is over or, uh, what, what other things are you hearing out there about, you know, while people are sitting, what are they doing creatively with themselves? I think it's really hard for people. I think it's really hard because creativity takes space and time that are, are hard to, um, sort of describe, but like 30 minute sessions in between trying to teach your kids math. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think it's just, um, it, it's almost a waste of time. You can't be creative in 30 second uh, or 30 minute sort of bursts. Um, I think it took time for people to have their conversation with their families and figure out what the schedule will be. Um, I think now it's a lot more settled than maybe it was back then although there are different pressures now. Um, but I think that that half of it was like, what is happening right now? Getting used to the rhythm of being with your family. And many of us, you know, go shoot for five months and are away for a long time or edit for eight months, six months, and then come back to their families. And so we, our families are used to a rhythm. It's, but that, and, and so when you get into that, you actually can survive it but when it suddenly gets disrupted and then you don't know the lines anymore i think the the defining the schedule was a huge hurdle that everyone had to get through then comes the what jobs are going to be available then comes the worry of actual survival of um like like myron was saying like is he going on to another job what's what is that next job who's shooting like that is very scary we go from job to job that's what our even as a director, you're only as good as your last movie. And I could go out of work tomorrow for five years. Like I have no idea. So, um, you know, again, our families are used to that, but this is more uncertain than even those times. So I worry about, yeah, our music editors. I worry about our uh, VFX people and the things that we know that are such an essential part of movie making and yet they are also dependent on a process of production that is moving and when that when that and 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 it's it comes and flows so one comes and the next one comes so if you miss one there's always another train but when all trains have stopped i think that is very worrisome and so so i know a lot of people for writers great like we're having writer rooms right now um, we're having meetings we're developing stuff so i think a lot of and i actually think a lot of the other creative people in other aspects of 
production are now pitching things actually or coming to me and we're, we're coming up with ideas and, and things like that. So um, right. I think people are just expanding kind of what they do or at least more open to other avenues that that are not in their lane necessarily at that at this moment. Right. This is a time of incredible. Uh, there's going to be a lot of scripts around when you guys get back into production, I imagine. Um, yeah. Yes. A lot of, a lot of it. What's interesting, the hard, the, the thing that puts more pressure on it is that there were already a lot of scripts because everyone was preparing for this writer's um, strike that was oh, wow. supposed to happen in right. May. So everyone was already like getting surplus of scripts and getting everything ready for that possible pause. So now it's like they have a already have a surplus. So are they going to put more into that or not? And I just think that that's, but we also have a different world. Our stories don't, I, I don't know if you guys felt, but watching stuff on uh, movies or television when people are in parties and close yeah. together, it makes you feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable all of a sudden. And I never yeah. expected mm -hmm. that actually. And so it changes the way you make movies because you know your audience is going to react differently, I guess. Well, I, I kept wondering whether or not, you know, we don't know how long this will go on and we don't know what the timetable of it is, but let's just say it went on for another year and that it was just opening next summer, just theoretically. I mean, it's going to be hard. Every movie that you're ever going to see is going to have to have some reference to this in order for it to be tethered to reality, I mean, <laughs> which is sort of horrible when you think about yeah. it. But, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, let's talk about for a minute, um, you know, what you're seeing as creative adaptations out there. You know, I was thinking, okay, green screens and animation are going to be a big thing for the next six months. I mean, maybe there'll be tons of animation because that'll be the one thing you can do with a kind of networked team, right? Rather than having to have people on site on site, or maybe you're seeing other things out there. What are, what are you guys noticing in terms of creative, you know, positive creative uh, adaptations out there in the world? Well, the SNL at home, um, uh, the couple of the episodes that they did, I thought was was pretty inventive and interesting, and and you know some of it worked, some of it didn't, but uh, was was pretty funny. And yeah. and you know I've seen a lot of um, you know actors making their own videos with their own um, uh, costumes and uh, adapting things. Uh, I forget who the artist is. Uh, John might know who's doing the Sound of Music. Uh, reinterpretations of sound of music and um, and um, you know I just think there's an opportunity to not not stopping you know to keep creating something you know right. and and then um, and <laughs> for that matter keep people employed there is editors cutting that SNL at home and making graphics for it and uh, the, you know um, so uh, I'm hopeful that something good will come out of all this. You know, I was uh, John just recently did the USC uh, uh, commencement um, uh, last week, and they were saying how a bunch of the students um, were being very inventive and uh, coming up with their thesis projects. And I, I don't know, there's something really interesting about that. And, and right. I They'll be at the vanguard. These students you talked to, John, they're going to be in the vanguard of adapting to this. I mean, they're already mm -hmm. probably sort of have it built in with the social media video and are, you know, instantly see how this can happen. I mean, um, 
Yeah, suddenly their skill sets of knowing how to do stuff all at home, all by themselves as a one-man show is, is going to be very, very valuable. Yeah. Um, I mean, we see it even, like, it's funny, even on, like, the Disney sing-alongs. Like, the, that's so fun to see uh, yeah. people at, the, at their homes, to see uh, how inventive a star really is when they don't have all the production value. We're just yeah. watching The Voice, the finale of The Voice, and they all are in their backyard with, like, cue lights. <laughs> In different colors and like yeah, yeah. Um, you know they all it, it's very interesting to see how uh how these production the, these you know big shows are actually doing doing it so um right and, and there's still a charm you know it's really charming to see somebody try to be a star at home and and on a on a on a voice competition show that we we are so we are so used to and we're used to seeing the audience in the big production and yeah, now yeah. you just literally hear their voice yeah, uh, so. I mean, uh, the Stephen Colbert without a laugh track has been fascinating. Yeah, um, and he can really pull it off. He's just his timing is so, so precise. Yeah. You know, you could and see I, that actually with you could see that with SNL the first time they did it, the second time they did it. Um, well, they did some experiments on the first time where they had some people at home laughing with it, and the next week they decide not to do it. But what they did was interesting in in the um, in those in the, um, the news section of their show, uh, Weekend Update, they actually, the jokes uh, ramped up more. Like they, they yeah. were on more on top. They weren't waiting for a laugh. They weren't doing, and it was really interesting to watch how they adapted their jokes. Um, again, it's a different type of joke telling when you don't have an audience and you don't give it that space. Yeah, um, and yeah. so us as an audience also has to like laugh, but then keep listening. And so it's a, it's a different experience. Well, I'm thinking now about um, also some of the shows like the uh, Barack Obama commencement uh, graduation mm-hmm. um, show that LeBron James produced and uh, other ones I've seen where they are able to also integrate and sequence together musicians who are all in their different rooms together. And, you know, and it ends up looking like uh, the opening of the Brady Bunch meets <laughs> yeah. like Hollywood Squares, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can see the cast of like In the Heights and a Hollywood Squares sort of scenario, like totally. doing their doing their thing. And have you guys been, you know, keeping up with is the cast, you know, zooming together and talking about the fate of the film and or you know what's the yeah, well, we have we have a group text that we all it goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever so <laughs> that's like 24 7 going i told them you know via text um and also some phone calls if anyone wanted to talk about when we got pushed to help explain what was going on before they read it in the press um, also actually even like the week before I talked to them as we were having the discussion, just so that they knew that we we're not taking this lightly. Cause you know, when you push a year, it changes their lives for a year. Uh, yeah. they're expecting to build off of this movie and of now course. it's on pause for a year. So it yeah. affects real people's lives. So, uh, but, and then, and then we do zooms. Um, we had a crazy rich Asians like live tweet session. And while we were doing the live tweet session, we had a private zoom with, all the cast and that was really fun because we actually haven't we have we also have a whatsapp group for crazy rich Asians that is nutty um with our crew and cast um but to see everybody again and also everyone's on different parts of the world so some people it was like three in the morning that was that was really fun but it, it we, because we have this time it really allowed us to touch base again um which is really um yeah i don't take that for granted at all no i mean you're kind of in the morale business right now you know, just yeah. trying to keep people's uh, dreams alive. 
Um, yeah. Until next summer, and you know, next summer, quote unquote, we don't know what that's even going <laughs> to hold, right? Um, exactly. Um, but I mean, there is this sort of shadow, uh, and you hear it. You know, you'll you hear anything nowadays. You know, people. There's the optimists. There's the apocalypticists, if that's a word. <laughs> um, you know, will there be theaters after this? Like, are people going to want to go into theaters again, or maybe they're going to be masked up the entire time? You can't eat your popcorn correctly. <laughs> Um, you know, have you heard, have people had these discussions amongst each other about what's the fate of how our, you know, of, of the theater experience? Um, on my side, uh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's not, um, that's not being ignored. What is the fate of, of, of the theater experience? But I am on the side of, we are the theater experience. So we're making it, we're going to make it work and we're going to give reasons for people to come out and, um, and we're going to be safe about it, of course. And to me, theaters, uh, the movie theater experience, while it may evolve, um, I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever goes away. There's, there's the community experience. It's like sports. Like you want to get out and you want to be with people and you want to experience this dream in the dark together. So you all can talk about it and debate about it afterwards. Like, I don't think that ever goes away. Um, how and what prices and uh, what is it going to be the same as before? No. And I just think, uh, but I, but I do think that um, cinema has a very big role to play in our culture um, has always will, will be. And there's big stories to tell. And those are really important. Um, to, for us all as uh, as as a world to learn about each other and have empathy for each other and see stories that we aren't that that aren't that we aren't used to seeing every day i think it's a huge key to unifying um, the world as it always has been um, and not just again in your home looking at it by yourself but actually like being also with people to do that yeah i have to believe in that i can't not give up i can't give up on that dream and so our job is to give reasons for it to exist yeah man i uh i'm with you and uh you know we need that that sense of um of hope and and thinking out ahead about and 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 frankly to your point i mean as we sit here and we grasp in the dark trying to grab wrap our arms around the new storyline that none of us understands it's going to be exactly your world, your art form that is going to give us both interpretation and understanding, but also some sort of exorcism, you know, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, emotional kind of um, uh, expression around around all this and make and have us understand what we've been going through. Right? Yeah, it's a valve that allows us to connect with each other. Like just to say, you're not alone in those feelings. And, but there is light. Like we, Myron and I always talk about like, we need to take the audience into hell and then guide them out step-by-step step to show that there's light. And, um, and, and, and the reason why Myron and I, you know, we first started working on crazy rich Asians together and then we haven't stopped working together since then. But, um, but with that one and with In the Heights and with Home Before Dark, it was always like, now our movies, it's really hard to go back for us because now our movies need to have purpose. 
They need to have a real reason to exist that's bigger than ourselves. And so whether that's the fight for truth and journalism in Home Before Dark for Apple TV or um, this, uh, the story of America through this uh, block in Washington Heights, um, in, in the Heights, or um, an Asian American going to Asia for the first time and trying to find her self-worth, um, her sort of going through this cultural identity crisis. To me, those things are movies that um, can only be made by people who really needed to get made, who really wanted to get made, because we had to push every lever to get it through the system, um, and also uh, helps the audience see a world that maybe they haven't seen before. It gives a little bit of understanding. So that, in a weird way, this pandemic shelter in place um, only reaffirms kind of uh, our, the type of movies that Myron and I want to make together. Um, because it's because uh, we, we, as we see, we only have a certain amount of time on this planet and we only have a certain, um, we've got to get people out uh, to confront each other. Otherwise, we're all going to hate each other. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I've recently been thinking about, um, you know, on the silver lining, optimistic side of the ledger, that yeah. this this virus is, uh, you know, it's the one thing that everybody on the earth can now relate to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we were uh, the whole sort of fate of our of our world was everybody was sort of retrenching into these nationalistic, bordered up kind of worldview and the kind of, uh, but suddenly we all have one big story that we're yeah. involved in. Um, and, and haven't we always known that like, what's crazy about movies, it's like, you know, everyone's like, well, no one could have predicted this. No one could. And you look at movies, you're like, I think every movie predicted an alien invasion at some point <laughs> where the world had to like suddenly come together. <laughs> like that's part of the big epic story. And that all the world's borders didn't matter anymore. Humans had to come together and we are being attacked by an alien. It's just not from above, it's from within. And I just think that like, we are actually living that. That is yeah. crazy to me. It <laughs> is, it is truly crazy. It's almost, yeah, we're definitely living in this, uh, uh, in a Hollywood um, dystopia. So you have to um, maybe change the narrative from the Hollywood side <laughs> and reverse engineer this whole well, thing. Well, humans conquer. Humans do will yeah. conquer. <laughs> Guys, um, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming to Inside the Hive. John Chu, Myron Kirstein, the team that brought you Crazy Rich Asians and are going to bring you In the Heights, a film that, frankly, uh, I personally could use right now. Uh, it's so full of so much optimism <laughs> and joy. Um, but hopefully we'll get it and maybe there'll be some workaround where we can uh, get a look at it sooner rather than later. But thank you both for coming. I'm, I'm just really grateful to have you and uh, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. I'd like to thank my guests, John Chu and Myron Kirstein, and of course my co-host Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, especially our producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. We'll see you next week.